0: So when you would find something interesting about a nearby town, did you forward it to the mayor or something and say, hey, I can't do anything with this. I've got enough on my plate.
1: No, I don't alert the mayors uh, of these issues. Some of them are embarrassing, by the way.
0: Uh, (laughs) You uncover something in the newspaper and you're like, we're just going to make that disappear because the village of Tolono does not need to know that.
1: Tolono comes to mind. Okay. (laughs)
0: Hey, it's Steve, and uh, I'm going to take a trip to Homer, Illinois. Not going to Homer Lake. I'm not going to Hidden Acres. I'm going to chat with the mayor of Homer, Illinois, Ray Cunningham, about his ties to North Korea. Uh, No, it's not what you think. Actually, I was talking to a friend who listens to the podcast, and he suggested that Mayor Ray would be a good interview because he has been to North Korea on photography missions a bunch of times. Plus, Mayor Ray really was the driving force behind... Uh, just the huge historical database that has been put together about Homer, Illinois. There's some pretty fascinating stuff there. Before I talk to Mayor Ray, a couple of uh, emails. John says, Hey, Steve, I just came across your podcast. It's great to hear your voice again. My first listen was the one about zombies, and I not only laughed about Champagne having a zombie assault vehicle, but I enjoyed learning a little uh, history of zombie movies. John, thank you. And for clarification, It's not a zombie assault vehicle. Jeff Reynolds has a zombie defense vehicle. He's defending us, not assaulting the zombies. But thanks for emailing. Jennifer says, Steve, I've been listening to your podcast since it started, and I've been telling everyone I know. I used to listen to you and Melissa and Andy for years on the radio. If you ever do Holstein and Company podcast mugs or t shirts, I'll be your first customer. Uh, Jennifer, thanks. No plans right now for mugs or t shirts, but if you get my newsletter, I'm sure I will offer some sort of discount code. So get signed up for that. Holstein.co is where you can sign up for my newsletter. John, Jennifer, thanks so much. If you'd like to email me, you can do so by sending a note to steve at Holstein.co. Okay, let's talk to Mayor Ray Cunningham from Homer, Illinois. So Mayor Ray, thanks for joining me. And we were talking just before I hit record here about our internet issues. I, I apparently need to replace my... Cable modem. Comcast Xfinity says that's what the issue is. Your modem's too old. So, OK, I'll, I'll go ahead and do that. We'll see if that works. And you were telling me at the time of this recording that Homer, the entire your city, was without Internet for a few hours yesterday.
1: Internet and cable. Uh, yes. And and that's not infrequent, uh, particularly this month. Uh, apparently, it's weather related. So occasionally it'll go down and people will then call me and say what <laughs> happened <laughs> do you get calls from people saying where's my internet yes and sometimes they'll call the mayor's office or the. and it's really a point of reference my wife is the uh, librarian for homer and she gets the same kind of calls but of course when their internet goes down they'll call me and and it just as a reminder of how uh, really close we are to our internet connection and how connected we really are.
0: Well, and you need the internet because you do some consulting for a Caribbean nation. Do I have that right?
1: I do. That's right. Uh, I work for Lorson Resources in Trinidad and Tobago. uh, They're headquarters in a a town called Chaguanas in the middle of the island of Trinidad. And uh, I've been going there for 10 years now, uh, working there occasionally. And Uh, doing consulting with government, with industry. And uh, really, it's it's like a second home. During COVID, I haven't been able to get back. I was there last year in February, and then everything in March just kind of fell apart. So we've been doing everything via Zoom.
0: So uh, if you can, try to give me a quick overview of how you, so you, you worked at the University of Illinois. You're retired. I imagine that the work you did there somehow ties in with the consulting you do. Uh, and, then, and then how you also made the jump to the mayor of Homer, which you've been now for seven or eight years.
1: Well, uh, my wife and I moved to Illinois uh, for the job in uh, 1996. I was working at Dartmouth College. Uh, I was doing some consulting in the 90s. The University of Illinois Foundation called and asked uh, if I could come out. So I came out, took a look around and uh, called my wife and said, well, would you like to move to Illinois? And she had never uh, lived outside of Vermont, Connecticut. So uh, we said, well, we'll do a few years here. And we had two young sons and so we said well let's try it what we found was the champagne urbana area was really a a great area to raise children and we we enjoyed it and the job was very good so uh, we decided to stay so we looked to buy a house and we were looking at the different communities the home and homer that we currently live in we decided to purchase uh, that home Homer's a welcoming community, despite what people had said to me that, well, you'll never fit in. uh, What we found is we did fit in and we were welcomed. And so I joined the Historical Society and the Historical Society wanted to write a formal history of of Homer. And I said, well, I have a master's degree in history. Uh, I do historical research. I'd be glad to do that. Uh, As a result, we have a 780-page history of Homer. I had volunteers help me. I had a lot of involvement from people. People went out and did research for me. So I worked really hard at that. I was head of the Sesquicentennial Committee uh, for 2005 for Homer. Then uh, I became head of the uh, Community Development Board, learning everything I did, Uh, I decided to run for the village board and was elected and uh, became mayor in uh, 2013.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I think when you put together the history of of the village of Homer or any city, I think eventually they're going to say, would you be mayor, please? (laughs) On the history of Homer, what is the most fascinating thing that you uncovered?
1: Uh, One of the questions that I asked everyone is, who's the most famous person? to ever come from Homer? And they couldn't really answer that. That was was rather hard. But in the research, we kept coming upon a certain person in the 1870s and 1880s that as he grew up, he was known as the barefoot debater, and he was very articulate. He uh, would win debating contests in school. And we followed him, and he became governor of Indiana in 1905. Frank Hanley was his name, and he became uh, really a spokesman for the Prohibition movement. He headed what was known as the Flying Squadron, and he would go from uh, from state to state, and he would articulate this Prohibition uh, idea of prohibiting out the sale of alcohol. And he was one of the ones that really pushed Prohibition through, and he also... Uh, While he died in an accident in 1920, he argued before the Supreme Court to uphold prohibition. He's not really well known uh, outside of Indiana, but uh, he came from Homer and uh, became a lawyer. And that was very surprising. We had no real idea, except that the biggest issue in Homer in its history was always prohibition. Homer was a dry town for most all of its years, and we finally got alcohol in 2006.
0: 2006, is that right?
1: Casey's could finally sell liquor. <laughs> the irony here is that uh, I'm the liquor commissioner today. So Okay.
0: That comes with the job as the mayor, I imagine.
1: It does, yes.
0: Okay. So if somebody were to try to dig into the history of their town or their village or or whatever, and maybe there isn't one other than, you know, the one pager that's on the village website, right. where, where would you recommend that somebody start?
1: I recommend that you start reading the newspapers. For example, if we went to Champaign and Urbana's newspapers, we'd find that there are columns for all of the small towns that exist around in Champaign County. So what you would do is you would collect these small jottings or these small entries about the towns, and you would learn quite a bit. And you need to create this timeline of what happens. You may not understand what you're reading at the time, but what will happen is as you gather more and more of this information— And it's better to have different perspectives. So you might look at more than one newspaper for a perspective on your particular town, but you begin to assemble this and you'll begin to understand business, industry, uh, all of the social issues of the towns. And I found some of the other towns around Champaign and Urbana were fascinating, It's always interesting that a competing town will always spill the gossip on the neighboring town, whereas your own town will not say what's really going on. I've even thought to write a book on how to do historical research for local history. The reason I say that is that's really what I focused on uh, in my graduate degree work at the University of Utah.
0: So when you would find something interesting about a nearby town, did you forward it to the mayor or something and say, hey, I can't do anything with this. I've got enough on my plate, but I happen to find this if you want to post it on your website or Facebook?
1: No, because much of the research that uh, it continues today, by the way, Uh, we've created a large database of about 40,000 items uh, for the history of Homer. But I have made other people aware of some resources. Yes, that's true, but no, I don't alert the mayors uh, of these issues. Some of them are embarrassing, by the way. Uh, <laughs> so <laughs> you just you,
0: you uncover something in the newspaper, and you're like, "We're just going to make that disappear because the village of Tolono does not need to know that."
1: Tolono comes to mind. Okay. <laughs>
0: Uh, now, uh, I'll tell you, this is the reason that I wanted to have you on the show, because we wanted the dirt on Tolono. Um, okay. okay. So, you, wow. So you're still uncovering information about Homer, and you have the background in gathering and, and, uh, and disseminating this historical information. Right. If somebody's starting out just with their own little neighborhood, thanks to technology, is it easier now to just start scanning and let the computers... A sort of OCR, opt- optical character recognition, pull stuff out and then self-organize? Or how would you go about it?
1: The OCR issue of the old newspapers, it doesn't work very well. You have to have a certain methodology for looking for information. I'm finding that I still have to go to Springfield or I have to go to Danville to look at newspapers that are not online and are not indexed so you you while you can create a timeline using newspapers that isn't everything and then you have to branch out to these other resources court records are wonderful for that divorces we we would get a lot of local gossip from divorces so <laughs>
0: you know <laughs> especially from tolono <laughs> yeah <laughs> talk to me about consulting in trinidad and tobago how did that come about
1: they needed a teacher to come down and so I said, sure, I'll I'll do it. <laughs> yeah, twist my arm. I'll go there. Well, to be honest, uh, they hadn't had much luck with their other consultants. But I've traveled to 65 other countries, and I'm used to anything. So therefore, uh, going there was not a real stretch. So uh, they really liked me and said, well, can you come back? Well, of course I can come back. And I began going down maybe three or four times a year to uh, lecture on topics of information management. And so I was going down more and more. Uh, They've invited me to live there, but I I didn't want to make that jump. So I work there now more regularly. When I retired, they said, oh, good, you can move down. No, I couldn't move
0: down. <laughs> you said, no, I am still working on the history of Homer.
1: <laughs> but I I said, no, I'll come down, uh, stay a little more and
0: commute. So it sounds like you're the kind of person that has a brain for organizing data. That's really your brain's go-to place.
1: It is. Uh, I entered records management in 1980 at the University of Utah, and at, at that time it was all paper. And But I could see that uh, really the digital age was coming and more of these kinds of records would be done in a digital environment. So uh, I, I just love filing systems, let's put it that way. Uh, <laughs> And, and databases. So I do that at home in my spare time now. I collect information on Homer and try to collate it and then so that I can retrieve it. And it's it's not easy with historical information. It's very difficult with photographs to apply. Metadata to photographs, and then have them retrievable.
0: So, you know, it's interesting. I was listening to an actual podcast. Uh, I'm a Apple guy, so I've got MacBooks and iPhones, and I was listening to a podcast, and they had a guest on who said who, the sole purpose of the conversation for about an hour was how do you organize your photos? Because, <laughs> now, I mean, my wife's iPad, she uses it as her computer, as her as her camera. And she probably has 10,000 pictures on there. Now, they're backed up to the cloud.
1: How do you do that? How do you organize? I'm a photographer, and I have roughly uh, one million photographs currently. Uh, You have to have a multi-location plan. Cloud is a piece of that, but you also have to have the organization locally. Um, If I go out and do a photo shoot, I immediately back it up three times. The cloud is one of those places. My wife groans every time I buy a, buy a new drive to back up my photos, yeah. which which I do every six months or so. I back them up, then I will take them to another location, and I continuously do that. I do sell photographs at times. I've taken photos all over the world, and then people come to me and say, I'd like to buy this photograph. Some of them have gone viral and I've lost control of them. So if you're a photographer and you sell photos, there are some that you cannot control that they will go viral and they're everywhere. And so you'll see uh, your photograph on a book cover or so, and you've lost control of it. So I have several like that.
0: Yeah. And probably the the process of reaching out to a publisher or a website uh, and saying, I need you to change that or remove that, you know, it would be time consuming and costly.
1: It's. Uh, I have uh, issued cease and desist orders for photographs. I, I have done that. However, there are some that I will let people use that I just have no control over. Um, one photograph of a sunrise went so viral, I could not control it under any circumstance. That It just went to every PowerPoint in the world, it was picked up. And I I just said, well, it's free. I'm giving up. (laughs) Uh, But otherwise, many of these things appear on bloggers in China and Russia. And so I don't mind if they're used, if they're attributed.
0: Let's talk about something else that uh, you have done that very, very, very few people on the planet have done, and that is uh, taking trips to North Korea Uh, And uh, those have been photography missions, correct? That's
1: correct. When uh, I was young, uh, my father was in the military, and I lived all over. I lived in Europe, I lived in Hawaii. I lived on both coasts and uh, went to 21 schools before I graduated high school. And the reason for that is my father's job was a critical one during the Cold War. And uh, I took uh, university degrees in history and political science. And as part of that, uh, I studied about the Soviet Union and China. North Korea was always the one that I had trouble applying to or getting into. As the years went by, I tried harder. And in 2008, uh, I found a British tour company that was going in. And uh, this was a five-day tour. Americans were limited to certain days of the week. Uh, So I decided to go uh, for the five-day tour. I had been to all the other Eastern Bloc countries. I'd been to China in 1985, traveling alone, traveling alone in the Soviet Union. I had been to the Arctic. I had been all over the Soviet Union, but North Korea eluded me. After that, my wife and I took the five-day tour. Uh, I knew I had not seen anything and that you were really scripted, and, uh, but I was very curious. So I was invited back the following year to return to a special tour for Americans who had been there before. This tour was somewhat different. It was uh, five of us Americans, but we were all experienced. What the uh, tour company did was set us off with some guides, and these guides were very different. They were more high-level political people. And they said, oh, take all the photos you want. Uh, Let's just travel around and see things that normal people don't get to see. The following year, uh, I was invited back again, and this time they were lengthening the tours. By the time I had taken my sixth tour, I had seen most all of the country and most all of the rural countryside. And I was documenting what life was like uh, in the rural countryside. They began to trust you and that you weren't there to really make a, a fuss or, or do anything. So uh, when you go to North Korea, You are on your best behavior. As I say, you're only five minutes from a major diplomatic incident if you do anything. And so I began uh, really wanting to document the society. I got involved after my last trip with a publisher in the Netherlands who wanted to do a book on regular life in, in, in North Korea. And so I said, well, I know these two other photographers are actually better than me, why don't you include them and we can get a better uh, better fix on it? One of them was a National Geographic photographer. Another was a diplomat who was in the country quite a bit. So uh, the three of us, uh, we put our photos together and uh, published this book on uh, life in North Korea. Um, it is a very fascinating place. It's like going back in time about 80 years uh, because everything is, is very much as it was many years ago. And uh, they, they don't have much contact with the outside world, but sometimes they'll surprise you. Whenever people find out that you're an American, uh, you're really given the red carpet. They really try to be genuinely nice.
0: It's kind of like, I don't know which movie it was. Maybe it was Jurassic Park or something that said, you know, life finds a way. And and so information finds a way. Information, I'm sure, gets its way into North Korea. And it must because if they are very warm and welcoming and roll out the red carpet, even just average people in North Korea, they they know something. They know the truth about what's outside the borders of North Korea.
1: Is that is that a, is that a fair assessment? It, it is. Um, if, But to be honest, if you go to... Many countries, if a foreigner comes to visit them, they want to roll out the carpet as well. I mean, it's really no different in the South. Uh, But uh, the North is really stuck in a peculiar time warp, in a sense. It's been closed off so long that the norms and standards just don't seem to apply. When I talk about North Korea, I say the only thing we have in common with them is gravity. They want to preserve their culture. One of the things that is said is, we want a country where we are free to be Korean. And I said, then what, did it, what does it mean to you to be Korean? It's a very sentimental society. They, they love grandma who lives in a village. And there, there are lots of those elements, the same kind of things that we think about when we go back and see grandma on the farm, that, that same kind of nostalgia. So they're very nostalgic for that. Yet they all want to live in an apartment, have a TV, and it can be a very warm place in in a sense. On the other side, you are seeing one of the most notorious regimes that has ever been around, and you see vestiges of it. They can't hide it from tourists. When you drive, when you go everywhere, they just simply cannot hide the backside of poverty, hunger. Is there a famine there now? No, but not by any stretch. Nutrition is much better than it had been. You see much more economic activity than there had been. Back in 2008, it was very different. On my last visit there, there was optimism. People were happier. There was more food on the streets. It was They were doing better. And so you really got a sense of that. I have seen the downside of the society. There's no hiding it. I can tell you about things. I can't illustrate them with photographs because uh, those are the things that they don't want you photographing. They are hesitant to speak out. That That is very true. Whereas when you're in Cuba, every Cuban will give you their opinion regardless of what the regime says. I mean, they'll all speak out and just say, oh, it's terrible. <laughs> you know, we can't raise chickens. This is really bad. How, you know, how bad does it need to get? If we're rationing bread... You know, things are pretty bad here. Uh, And even uh, Communist Party members will tell you that in Cuba. They're very outspoken. Russians are a little more subtle in the old days about their opinions. Now, in North Korea, they will tell you what they think, but you have to be smart enough to understand what they're saying. And what I mean by that is there is this particular Asian subtlety about how things are expressed and if you're not used to the kind of double speak that these countries have you would not you would not pick it up i i will tell you that when we talk about brainwashing i just am not convinced there's really such a thing i do have friends there that they will tell you what they think we will spend hours sitting in Lecture halls being propagandized, and then afterwards they'll say, Well, let's go have a beer, and then they tell you the truth. Okay. (laughs) You know, they have to officially tell you what the official line is and what they think. Then there's the other side, and you'll be sitting in a bar and They'll come on television and announce 100 days of labor campaign coming, and everyone will groan. And you know what they think. I mean, it's not as we think it is. We see this, the press portraying it as one way. But really, what you need to do is go out in the countryside, go to the villages, and really see what life is. And life is very hard there. They have to haul water Uh, food is is difficult to obtain. They have to grow it themselves in their own uh, patches. And so it's very, very difficult.
0: Before I let you go, do you think that your travels to North Korea and to China and to Russia and your regular business dealings with Trinidad and Tobago, and do you think that that helps you in a special way as a mayor
1: of a village? It really does. And I'll tell you why. I'm sort of a cultural chameleon that I've been able to adjust and observe many different cultures. The culture in a small town Midwest is no different. I have to listen and understand what people's local culture is. And I think it's been very helpful. And Homer has really has a wonderful small town atmosphere. It, uh, really is accepting of people as it's accepted my wife and I, I really appreciate that. That's something that I think many American towns have, that if you want to contribute, if you want to be a part of the town, then you can indeed become that.
0: My thanks to Mayor Ray Cunningham of Homer, Illinois. And one final note, as I was putting the finishing touches on this show, I realized that I failed to ask Ray why Homer's most famous resident, J. Frank Hanley, was called the barefoot debater. So I emailed Ray and he said this. The barefoot debater would come to the one-room schoolhouse debates, a common event, barefoot. Sometimes his friends would lend him shoes. Also, Mayor Ray sent me a pretty amazing photo of himself sitting on a mountain in North Korea. I've added that to the episode page at Holstein.co, and it's in this week's email newsletter. If you're not getting the newsletter, you can sign up at Holstein.co. Okay, I'm Steve Holstein. This was the Holstein & Company podcast. Thanks for listening, and have a great week.